0: Somebody asked me recently, like, are you a cynic? Are you just somebody who's like against all this stuff? And I'm like, I really don't like you don't teach a class. You do not like I taught a class on driverless cars. You don't go through the curriculum process and write up all those goddamn documents. If you're like a cynic and you don't want to talk about something.
1: Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek,
2: Transportation Editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, the Director of Special Operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show, but I'm also the producer of Apex, The Secret Race Across America, the greatest documentary about cars ever made. And I'm
3: Ed Niedermeyer. I'm just some guy, Um, but I'm really excited uh, to be here today. First of all, of course, it's always lovely to be chatting with uh, my good friends, Alex and Kirsten, but... Also, I'm really excited about today because uh, longtime listeners of the show might know that we've brought up AV-related fiction as a, a topic a few times uh, on this actually, show. More, actually, actually, on years. every
2: episode is AV-related it, it, fiction. It, it, maybe <laughs> right. not every
3: episode, but it comes up pretty <laughs> regularly. And and unfortunately, like there, I wish it would come up more because I've I've long been baffled and and. Dismayed, I guess, a little that there's just not more good fiction about autonomous vehicles, or at least sort of centered on. But this on autonomous guest vehicles. is a
2: lot more than a writer of fiction. Do you want me I'm, to do the intro? After
3: all, no, Alex. Yes, please. I think he, I think he deserves a little bit of Alex <laughs> Roy treatment here. But I want to say I'm super excited about this conversation because Patrick McGinty is here, um, and he has written what I think is the best piece of fiction about AVs that I can like remember reading. So. That is super exciting. Patrick, welcome to the show um, and h- hang on really quick. We're going to let Alex provide a little bit more background on who you are before we actually let you talk here.
2: <laughs> in, in the realm of human uh, achievement, um, it is almost impossible to grasp the level of um, fiction writing and, and like, just absurdity that come out of the public relations people that work in, in any given vertical and in the autonomous vehicles vertical, it's, 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 I don't, you cannot call Patrick McGinty's work, the greatest work of fiction around autonomous vehicles. Cause that would have to go to most of the companies making EVs and working <laughs> in autonomous vehicles. Patrick McGinty professor, um, his achievement is, is being an outsider to the industry, not being a trained engineer, and using clarity of thought and language to deconstruct—I don't want to use a curse word—but um, the um, chicanery around the narrative of autonomous vehicles going back many, many, many years. He's written for The Bath. he's written a book um, that we're going to discuss the episode today. And I think it took a an a out of left field outsider with a very clear intellect and excellent writing skills to come out the in, come out the industry with this level of, of like laser. Like precision, and although he may not have intended to be a humorist, he actually is one of the greatest um, in technology history. Welcome, <laughs> Professor Patrick McGinty.
0: <laughs> Thank you. What a what an introduction, and this is such a thrill for me. Longtime listener, um, Ed is a cherished email correspondent. It makes my day when I get an email from Ed. Although there is the meme. It's like men will do X instead of go to therapy. Like Ed will literally explain the Wikipedia entry of a story he's working on instead of sending me <laughs> the actual story. So that's something we can discuss later. Um, Alex has probably done more to promote my work than anybody in this sector. And he's right saying I'm, I'm an outsider and like I needed some kind of somebody to see what I was doing and and, you know, promote it, send it around, give me more opportunities. So, I mean, I'm grateful to... To Alex and Kirsten is my favorite member of the Autonicast, <laughs> who I've never actually met, but who every time I'm listening to it, I say, "Shut up! I want to hear from Kirsten. I want to hear what Kirsten is saying." And she just speaks in these pearls of wisdom uh, that are always so appreciated. On a recent Autonicast, Kirsten did such a good job of connecting, um, you know, use case for for disability community to ui ux different things very succinctly in like two sentences at the end of a discussion and i thought yep that's that's my kirsten korosek doing the doing the good (laughs) succinct work of connecting these ideas together so so this is a thrill and i'm honored to be on thanks for having me
3: okay so so your book is called we haven't even mentioned the title yet we have to obviously do that it's called test drive it's a it's a, a novel um Patrick, why don't you tell us a little bit, like, where did this come from? What was the genesis of of Test Drive and maybe a little bit about how you would characterize it?
0: Where did the genesis of this come from? I mean, I wish I had a better, I probably, as I start doing press, I should have some better origin story that's, like, a little bit snappier that, like, you know, is, like, Well, when I was in the orphanage and Alex Roy came by and dropped off some racing gloves, that was the day I fell in love with. Like, I I should probably gin up a better, like, origin story for myself. I mean, the truth is, I've been working on, I just finished a really, really, really big book. Um, It was like 900 pages long. I had an agent. He was taking it to market. This huge surprise. Nobody wanted a really long book. And I kind of knew that might happen. We just moved back to Pittsburgh, where I'm from. My wife was pregnant. We had a house. I was sort of in the backyard getting it ready, and I'd been hunting around for 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 what's my next thing? Um, what's my next sort of world I'm going to dive into? And I remember it uh, uh, an Uber an Uber uh, prototype vehicle came down my alley in Pittsburgh. I was in the backyard, sort of fixing up the garage. And this, this is a rough alley. This is like a Pittsburgh alley that was all messed up and potholes. And I saw it go by, and I just was like, man, so they're in alleys now. I was like, this is this is like closer than I think. This is 2015, 2016. You know, me, I go to the library, of course, because I'm a dork. I'm an English professor. I start trying to sort of read up, do this. And much like Alex said, I start kind of getting a sense like, okay, there's like a lot of hype around this. But where's like the good stuff? Where's the actual like... The meat here, what's going on? And 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 you know, more and more I just kind of I just kind of get obsessed about things and dive into them. I do have, you know, my family story, which I don't even think I've ever shared this with you, Ed, even though we've we've gone back and forth before. You know, I'm I'm somebody who's always been not leery of the tech sector, but interested to stress test it. Um because like my mom, uh I was born in '86, my mom was I think like the fifth or sixth highest ranking female sort of official in Allegheny County in Pittsburgh. She was very successful. She had really ascended in the eighties, uh, at a tech and manufacturing company. She got, she got pregnant with my triplet siblings. I have younger siblings that are triplets. Uh, she got pregnant, had a very, very, you know, premature long attorney leave and long story short, like they filled her position, um, you know, at the top of this company and and it really altered the trajectory of our family of her life and that's something that i i kind of like knew in the 90s when i was growing up but it's something that the older i got the more i started sort of really interrogating and thinking about um that this this company that needed to you know meet certain benchmarks push things forward do certain things was was sort of willing to not uh sort of help this woman who was going through this you know incredible sort of moment so so that's like if I really think about my origins of like why I'm interested in this stuff sometimes people say somebody asked me recently like are you a cynic are you just somebody who's like against all this stuff and I'm like I really don't like you don't teach a class you do not like I taught a class on driverless cars you don't go through the curriculum process and write up all those goddamn documents if you're like a cynic and you don't want to talk about something you don't you don't write a book if you're just like wanting to just sort of tear something apart like I really do Believe in having the conversations, and I think of somebody who's more like really trying to make it a hard-earned and well-discussed kind of progress. Is I think how I would characterize. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm just like a skeptic, a cynic. I think I think that's like a lot of where I'm coming from as I start started writing this book.
3: Yeah. Well, so so and and I'm glad you mentioned your um your the class that you taught because um that was one of the things that we done together was uh, sort of highlight that when I was over at, at PAVE and that and was super cool because it was, you, you teach English and it's so not intuitive, I think, to, to say, I'm going to teach an English class around autonomous vehicles. But I think like, for me, it was a really important thing to realize that this, wow, this is something you can, you can just do. And actually it's a, it's a really good thing. Not all AV education has to be rooted in like the technology itself right? We have two challenges here. We have the technical challenge of making vehicles that drive themselves. But then we also have, um, you know, this separate challenge of making this technology work in society. And I think like your your course and, ta- you know, when you, you spoke about that, that was really a, a big thing for me to kind of like, understand, it kind of opened up all these horizons for me. And then your book itself, it, it, it does a similar thing in that, it's about AVs and it's about the test drivers, you know, the people behind the wheels of, of, of AVs, but it's really, it's about people and it's about society. Um, and, and, and how this technology fits into our society and the forces that, that, that shape it and, and how the technology also shapes our society. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a really fascinating area to write a book. I think a lot of times it's easy to think of sci-fi as like being about technology per se, but in this case, you're, you're, In this book, you're really writing about more than just the technology, right? Yeah. I mean, the technology – I
0: mean, I guess I should come on a podcast like this and say it's all about driverless cars. If you like driverless cars, you should definitely read it. But like honestly, it's – I think even though there's probably a driverless car on every page or every two pages of this book, um, it's very much about the climate. It's very much about just sort of – the economics housing? Of, uh, yes yes <laughs> i mean it's I, I i mean
1: that that was like a, a one thing that like really struck me was that it was um you know i i don't want to say dystopian because i don't think that's fair but but there were moments in there especially in the beginning where i was like you know i felt like it was could just as easily be a novel about housing and our like state of the world um so driverless cars, like, like Ed was saying, certainly, I mean, that's what it's about, but it's not really about that. It's about people. It's about society at that time and, and how they interact and interplay with, with this technology and the world that they've been given at that moment.
0: Yeah. And yeah, thanks for, thanks for saying that Kirsten. I really, I've just really like, you talk about like, what's the, what's it about? What's the, what's the point? What's the origin? Like, I, if I can just advocate for, like, fiction really, really loudly on this podcast and, like, why people should engage with it more. Like, I, I, okay, I, I have learned a ton about driverless cars from Twitter. I have. I've learned an absolute ton, engaged with different people, met different people. I, I say that. I Would you all agree you've learned some stuff on Twitter from, uh, yeah, I see some nods on the screens. <laughs> I think after about three to four minutes of being on Twitter or AV Twitter, the there's like incredibly diminishing returns on what I learn, and it drops precipitously. Um, and yet, Twitter takes up. If we're thinking of it like the food pyramid from like elementary school, f- Twitter in like your A V reading diet for most people is probably like the bread and the meat and the vegetables, and like it's probably like a gargantuan amount of the engagement. So I'm not saying everybody has to read my novel, 10 other novels, engage with all these different things. But it's just understanding what is your diet around learning about this type of stuff, engaging with these types of issues. When I'm on Twitter, if you can visualize in your head, listeners, like just I think of like, I think of tweets and even some reportage, which again, I depend on, like I depend on a lot of this to learn about it. I think of it as like these little individual lines, like if you think of like a line where you would put your name if you're turning in like a paper in a class, a little teeny line, and there's one like in the bottom right corner. And it's like these two little contributions. And sometimes they start talking, but they can't really find like interaction in the middle of the page. There are different altitudes. People, when I when I read Twitter, I just see people at different altitudes like all the time. Uh, and sometimes they meet in the middle, but very rarely. What fiction does is fiction draws a long line across the middle of the page. And some writer or artist gets beneath it and presses it up into an arc presses the story the narrative the longer form piece of writing into an arc. And when you have a longer narrative arc, people can access it at different altitudes. They can access it at different points on that arc. That sounds very like kindergarten geometry sort of uh, you know, sort of style, but like it makes a big difference and it lets more people into the discussion. And I have like a very real example of this. When I wrote Alex mentioned the thing I wrote for the Baffler a few years ago, just like 2018, 2019, and that piece was like, you know, I was very proud of that piece at the time. And I still think there's like a lot of like hard won insights in there. But when I reread it like a little bit later, it definitely read like more like a a string of specific insights and not like an arc. Not that I was like changing. I had just sort of been reading for a couple years. And I just sort of like compiled my insights into an essay. I wrote another one about uh, the absolute shit show that is the cryptocurrency sector. Um this past January. I love I worked, that
2: one. I absolutely love that one.
0: Thanks. Thank you, Alex. And that's, I have gotten more response to that piece than anything I've ever written. And, it's, and I think it's because I worked really stupidly hard to really chart more of an arc for people to travel on so that it, I start with like the housing crisis in 08. So if people went through that, they might identify like, Ed, your book starts that way. It talks about, you know, graduating and sort of, Oh, wait, or being around that era. So that's like an access point. I talk about going to some Occupy stuff and like kind of being kind of put off by it. That's another access point. I talk about being really bored and getting obsessed with stuff during the pandemic. That's an access point. I talk about being really turned off by crazy online communities who are, you know, like resistant to sort of any sort of a uh, counter argument. And I just learned like that piece did so well. And I've heard from so many people and it makes sense to me because I'm like, I, I really worked incredibly hard to build more of an arc so that people could see how I changed. That's really what I want more of when I like talk to AV people. Like I think one of the best podcasts you all ever did was with that Starsky Robotics dude. Um, like, on. yeah. On, yeah the day, like, it was like the day after his company went down or whatever, and he was ready to talk about how his ideas changed. You know, he was not coming on with predictions or takes or or, or sort of his flat lines. sort of, he was, he was like, just spouting change. I thought this. Now I think this. I used to think this. The learning curve is this. I used to think that, like, I, I remember where I was on my porch listening to that. I was like, completely wrapped. I actually included that in the last part of that bachelor piece, I was like ready to turn in that bachelor piece. And I, I like, I think put a quote from him from the podcast into that piece. And so, and even, even Alex, like I'm so, I've been very moved Um, recently, Alex, at the end of some of these episodes, we were talking about your mom and you're like, I don't really care about any of this stuff anymore. Like I need better UX, UI, I need better sort of things for, for people, for elderly populations, for the disability community. Like I love hearing, how people have changed. Uh, I want to hear more of it. And that's, and that's what I hope like my book can sort of help people do. I hope it encourages them. Uh, I'm about to drop one of my favorite Autonicast phrases. Y'all ready for this? Mm. I'll take it one step further. Uh, <laughs> uh, you like that one? I'll take it one step. That's, yeah. that's my, that's one of my favorites. I'll take <laughs> it one step further. I want, like, I wish more people would just write this stuff and some people do. And they send it to me. People who work in the sector, um, Like, I think when you arc things out, the reader can go on a change and also the writer uh, can go on a change. So, so that's, that's a big thing I want to have happen with this book. And then I hope, yeah, I hope, I hope it inspires more people, Ed, to uh, maybe finish a story they're working on or or something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that, um, fiction is interesting in that there's that phrase, you know, um, the rubber meets the road and it's meant to imply like, you know, showing, showing a product, showing the end result of something, um, showing proof and, um, and fiction while, you know, made up kind of is like the reality meets the road or up a potential of that reality meets the road moment, um, in topics like this, because you can be very free about, the made-up characters and things like that, but you can be very honest and truthful about the realities of the topic that you're writing about, which is in this case, you know, certainly people, but also driverless cars and, and get maybe to the reality or the truthfulness faster than a journalist might, or, you know, even a podcast might, although I put our podcast kind of in that same category. So, moments like when Stefan comes on our show, or we or Alex is talking about the UI UX um, needs and like his more recent personal experiences, those are those like interesting moments where it's no longer about platitudes and forecasts and, you know, timelines. It's like, let's talk about the realities of this thing, Um, which is really kind of a magical, neat moment. And it's sort of rare you don't necessarily find it on twitter occasionally a good twitter thread provides that but not not as much
0: yeah i mean listen i'm so dependent on your reporting kirsten but like you're right like journalists and reportage hits a wall at a certain point i can't report this or we can't go in the future Fiction's just like really good at hopping walls like it's just what it's built to do you know
2: yeah i have Uh, have a question you um in uh i don't want to give away too much of the plot of, of your new book uh but Kirsten, you said you didn't think it was very dystopian. I thought it was very dystopian about the state of just gig workers altogether. Because you've oh, got I this did. person.
1: I did. Let me clarify that really quickly. I just think sometimes it's easy to go like, this is dysto- dystopian, and and I didn't want to just like label it. So
2: I yes, it was. So please go it, ahead. You've got this character, and I don't want to give too much away, who is working as a safety driver for a, a company that has less than optimal policies <laughs> and a very poor driver monitoring system, might I might add. Who's trying to find an apartment while doing their job, which is incredible. Now, how much of that did you start writing this um, you know, at, with this as a student of the Uber Elaine uh, Hertzberg tragedy? I mean, like what 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 was the primary input to, to this narrative around the life the the day to day of a safety operator? So
0: I mean, so many. I mean, so you're, you're right that like I, there was a point in time early in the drafting process where I was trying to write it in the present tense. I was trying to write it like, you know, contemporaneously. Like, okay, this will be set in 2020, 2021, and it just quickly became clear that like so much new stuff was happening that it was going to kind of always feel out of date or or wrong or something. So I kicked the plot ahead to 2030. It was kind of like, okay, let me let, let me give myself a little more freedom to, like, not have to keep up uh, with the news. I mean, certainly, all type some stuff would happen, and it was this really weird thing where, like, I'd already written about it. Um, like, honestly, even the whole – there's this thing where there's – Yeah, can you
1: give us an example of that?
0: Yeah, um, man, I would have been, like, the smartest person in the world. I'm still pissed I didn't come out with this book, like, three years ago. I had already written – about, this isn't necessarily related to cars, but surge pay, this idea when there's these weather events, and there's surges, and people can't work, and you have to pay them. Like I had this whole thing about surge pay and people needing more work to stay at home. Well, then the pandemic happens. And we're, we're talking about, uh you know, like, stimulus checks and different things. And that's going on. And I was like, I would I would seem so smart if I had already published this book that I'd already thought through uh, some of these issues. So some things like that, were things that I'd weirdly already been, like, thinking about. Um, you know, as far as, like, the actual stuff that happens, yeah, certain, you know, certain um, certain wrecks, things that you all would be talking about, certain anniversaries where you would, I know, you did one anniversary one year since the one Tesla wreck or some different things. I remember listening to those and thinking, like, how do I, do I want to write away from this? Do I want to write toward this? Um I think once I made the pivot to setting it in 2030, I really tried to sort of like detox from the like day to day news of it um, because it it was too hard to kind of keep both paths running in my head. I would certainly still listen to your pod. I would certainly still like talk to lots of people. Um, But I was at a certain point, I tried not to like be too reliant on the news even though i'm sure like i'm sure there's tons of stuff that people will read in this book and be like oh that's totally based on that one thing and and maybe some are but like it's also one of the things about fiction like especially about driving and like just different things like it's just very easy to write i don't want to say generic but just write sort of very basic sort of things and and think that like oh that's that little maneuver that that or that something is totally based on event A, B, or C. There's, I don't doubt there's those synchronicities in the book, but like once I made the pivot to kick a lot of it in the future, I really tried hard uh, not to be as loyal to the news cycle.
3: Well, and, and one of the things that you do is you, you, instead of focusing on, on, yeah, these individual events that could be, uh, uh, you know, related to specific things that have happened in reality, it's, it's, you there's there's really interesting one of my favorite things about it is really interesting contrast of the different attitudes that people have towards this technology and you actually talk about it uh like like you address it very specifically when you're talking about two of the the main characters um who are both test drivers There's, there's i think three test drivers at this company they've been winnowed down by by layoffs and things like that and um and uh they have these really different attitudes um could you maybe like describe the 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 sort of how the characters approach this technology really differently because that was one of the things that really resonated for me and I think one of the things that's amazing about fiction is you can take things that are real which are these very different attitudes that people have towards this technology and recontextualize them and so then you can separate out like am I you know what are my attitudes towards it and how much are they tied to the specific context that the technology is actually happening in in our world Versus when you take it out and put it into this future world, those those attitudes look different and they feel different, um, which I think is again one of those really amazing things that that fiction can do. But like, talk a little bit about um, you know the the difference between Leah, for example, um, and and Anna maybe, and, and then um, you know your main your, your main character as well.
0: Yeah, I really wanted people to yeah, just I just wanted to try to represent honestly. Like sometimes I think when I write fiction, I think of yes, these people are sort of, I'm drawing from different people in my life, but I also think of them almost as different voices in my own head. Like people like this side of my head that really believes in a certain thing and really wants it to work. Other people who are more focused on other things. So yeah, like there's a character Leah, who's just very much a sort of like Alex sort of said, like gig worker, sort of organizer, sort of just kind of, stirring shit wherever she's gonna be uh there's another one who clearly went to school uh anna who who sort of has engineering robotics sort of in her background is trying to use sort of test driving as sort of a way in the main character pegs who's who's just sort of a car person um who who and even though I, i i'm not like as much of a car person which we can talk about because my sister's boyfriend had to help me quite a lot in the revisions of uh this book which you didn't even read the the updated ones uh Like, I even identify with her so much because, like, car people, one of the fun things about getting into this sector is, I just, I, I, car people are, like, eager to talk, but they also just want to be, like, alone with their stuff and work on it, which is how I am with writing. Like, I want to talk about writing. I love talking with you all about writing. I'm sitting here talking about character arcs and this, but, like, I also want, like, eight hours to myself of just, like, sort of tinkering and futzing with stuff, but... Yeah, it was really important to me that even in small moments, Ed. Like some of the things, there's just like a random scene. It's not random; it's a big scene. But like the night before Thanksgiving, they're sort of a, a kitchen table or a dining room table, sort of talking, and and one uh, one character's mom. Is like, or maybe one character's sister is sort of saying like, "Oh, those those like driveless car people—they're all—they're like, they're probably on their holidays, like on some fancy island, or they're off somewhere." And like one of the characters is like, "No, they're definitely at the office. Like they're working <laughs> their asses off. Like they're probably working round the clock." And like even just some of those interplays like that are moments where I really wanted to, because even in Pittsburgh, like I live here, I know all sorts of people who work in the sector. Every company, uh, people whose kids go to school with mine, like people who—I mean, I just know people and there's just all this different sorts of attitudes uh about them oh they they're in this fancy place some people are you know working really hard some people you know different companies are different places but i just wanted to try to i'm, gl- I'm glad you picked up on that um because i did try to have these moments where one character says one opinion and the other one pushes back real fast like just says something immediately and i don't even want to marinate on it too much like i'm not i didn't and that scene's not about like how often they People at driverless car companies in the office. Like that doesn't really matter. But I did want to have like a lot of moments where there's just really quick um like call and response. Just like really quick. Somebody says something, somebody pushes back um, with a really quick take. Um just to just to sort of express more of that. This isn't just some monolithic sort of industry where everyone's doing things the whole way, even in the same company, all these people, there's some people, some of the like people who work on different teams in the company, some people are like super gun ho and super like, let's do it. Other people are just kind of like, whatever, what's the next pivot? What's the, like, they're just, they're just kind of, you know, like kind of just, just here for the, you know, here for the fun of it almost. Uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad you seized on that.
2: Did you ever see the movie um, possessor? It's the son no. of uh, David Cronenberg. Uh, it's, it's a movie. I mean, does it, I don't want to give that away either. It's a really horrible dystopian a body horror movie, and I absolutely loved it. But uh, the main one of the main characters is a um, like a content moderator, and it depicts his role in this room full of people who have to look at horrible content. And I was struck by there. Ha- I don't think there's been a lot of intelligent fiction around gig workers and the gig economy, and, and this book. Um, pulls together multiple strands around what the life of a gig worker would be like in the future I mean have you read or seen any films or science fiction which you thought were had had any insights into the gig economy uh, that would that we were good
0: yeah I mean um for driverless cars specifically um, you know for driverless cars specifically a lot of the stuff I was like focused on was a lot of like mid 20th century stuff. Uh, there's a Ray Bradbury story "The passenger there's, um, Mm. you know, there's a twilight zone episode. You drive. Those are more like about sort of surveillance and sort of like, uh, they're about, they're about, they're about a lot of things. I taught those in my classes. Um, as far as like gig economy stuff, there's a book about Amazon by a German uh, writer. The book is escaping me. I think her name is, yeah, Heike Gessler. Is that her name? Yeah. Seasonal Associate. Seasonal Associate is uh, very, very, very good and stark. Uh, I saw that book. That book was, I read a little book by a poet in Seattle, Alex Gallo Brown. Shouts to you, AGB. You're the man. Um, that that he, he had a... a he had some, some quotes from that book in his work. He used it as sort of a, the opening epigraph. And I was like, oh, what's this book? I trust Alex's work a lot. And I started reading it. And Seasonal Associate is it's by a German author, uh, Heike Geisler. That's probably the best thing I've read. It's not fiction, though. Well, it's is it? I don't even remember. I can't remember if it's nonfiction or fiction. It feels so real. I think it's almost beside the point, whether it's fiction or not. It probably is written as fiction because otherwise Amazon would like – I don't know, sue her to the gills. Um, but Seasonal Associate, I would recognize as just like the day-to-day. I remember reading that and being like, yeah, this is really good. Some of the drudgery, some of the... I mean, one of the fun things about that book too is like you just... You're in an Amazon warehouse and you just see all the weird stuff that people want. That's one of the sort of bizarre pleasures of that book. In the same way that when you're a Test Driver uh, and you're writing fiction about it, like I'm somebody who always when I was writing other like manuscripts or stories, wanting to set things in all these different neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. And so this was great. Cause I was like, Oh, we'll just drive through for like 30 seconds and I'll just get to like, say this line about this one place. So there's some, so that's a book I would recommend too. And the little story poetry collection by Alex Gallo Brown, uh, variations of labor. There's a story in there he was a cafeteria worker at some tech company in Seattle at some point. And there's a story called I think it's like Caf Worker in a Tech Cafe or something that's just really 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 good and like not not it's not even slamming the tech company or sector. It's just like an honest insight into what it is going there every day, the repetitions of it, the the different dichotomies. It's just kind of slice of life stuff, but I thought that was great.
2: Did you read uh, Nickel and Dime by Barbara Ehrenreich?
0: Yeah, many, many years ago, yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. I, I mean, we're all looking for me. I'm waiting for someone to write the definitive book like that around gig workers. There's a there's a great science fiction film, it's very culty, called Hardware. You ever hmm. see that movie? No. That's from the it. 90s, um, and it's really low budget, and I have to go off topic here. It's directed, I think, by Richard Stanley, and it's notable for several reasons. Um, among them is the appearance, cameo appearance of the singer for the band Fields of the Nephilim uh, in the opening scene. But it takes place after World War III, and there's um, a uh, – in L.A., there's a woman who is an artist who collects um, street uh, trash and makes sculptures out of trash. Her boyfriend sca- uh, scavenges from like, to, like wrecked military vehicles and robots and brings her the parts – and so he brings the good parts to like a pawn shop to sell the parts, which is a shout out to your book. Yeah, I got <laughs> to um, see, see this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then he brings like the crappy part or the parts that they don't want to buy to his girlfriend who uses them to build um, trash art. And it turns out without giving away too much plot here that the, some of the parts he brings back are not obsolete and inactive yet. And so It's a fantastic film, but it it touches upon this notion that um, as technology becomes like commoditized, the bits and pieces of it, the hardware of it are relegated to um, like tradable trash, like junk, like, and that there's enough of it around that you can strip it off of the machines or it's extraneous and sell it as, I mean, people used to steal copper, they still steal copper wire. And so I found that fascinating. It'd be as fascinating as, you know, it struck me as what it must've been like a hundred some odd years ago when internal combustion vehicles, um, began to rise and people who had like cheap crappy horse saddles (laughs) must've been trying to get rid of them. Like, you know, as fast as they could.
0: Have you guys seen, have you guys seen super pumped? And do you have thoughts? I haven't seen it. I mean,
1: I've
2: read, read the book, but I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, but I was in a bookstore in Bal Harbor, uh, in Miami recently, which is probably the night, one of the nicest shopping centers um, down there in a very expensive bookstore. And uh, no one buys books in Miami in person or maybe at all, but I was in there and um, some kids ran past and I heard a father figure state only two books, each girls. I was like, well, who, who in this area in this shopping center in this bookstore would possibly say to their kids, only two books each. If anything, we want our kids to read more books. And then the the father uh, approached his daughters and began helping them pick their books. And he must have been six foot six. And it was the guy from uh, WeWork. No
3: way. No way. Oh, yeah. Adam! Adam Neumann. Yeah, that's Adam Neumann. so what? Yeah. crazy! Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah.
2: So, and so uh, I was like thinking to myself because uh, the we it was um, <laughs> this is the such WeWork, an we, Alex Roy story. Yeah, the <laughs> WeWork documentary and Super Pumped and the One About There and it was, all came out the same week. I was trying to imagine. So I was like, I'm like, does Travis Calling doesn't have kids? But like, if he did, would how many books would he want them to buy? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was your thought, okay? That's, <laughs> that, that, that's yes, that's exactly that was my thought.
3: That's why you listen
0: the to the WeWork documentary posts.
1: or the WeWork. Uh, yeah. Documentary was interesting for sure.
3: Yeah. I thought, I thought was, it, it was good. I, I, I wasn't, I can't say I was like, I've been blown away by it. I'm only like, I, there's only like four episodes out or something. Right. Something like that. Um, So it's, it's ongoing. I mean, one of my, I, it's a good book um, for sure. I feel like the AV part of it is like, a little absent because um, no, I think it's it is like
0: such, two scenes. A,
1: yeah. Yeah,
3: it's such an important part of the Uber story for me. And I get that it's not going to be the same for everyone, but I do think it, it's kind of weird that that piece is missing. It's sort of it, and frankly, it reflects to me, like, I think, I think a lot of people are scared to get into AV. So I'm not suggesting Mike Isaac is like scared of the topic or whatever, but I feel like AVs are easy p- things to leave out of stories. And, and maybe this, I, I'm curious to hear like the challenges that you face writing about AVs because I think it's it's hard. It's hard for anyone. Even if you feel pretty confident in your, in your knowledge about AVs, it's a really tough subject to feel confident about because no one really knows what's going to happen. No one really knows how it's all going to shake out and how it's all going to be seen historically. Well, who wants to write science
2: fiction? which three years later is completely wrong. Like, like whatever you're trying to allude to is discounted by a reader because something fundamental was wrong. And you can see that in the history of science fiction, how many times, um, how many times things were, were wrong. And it's often better to omit than to commit. When you, when you write science fiction, you should, it's always best, I think, to select a single vector of technological development and then attach your story to it and make it very human, which is what happens in McGinty's book. Because A lot of science fiction that tries to connect two or more trends gets one wrong and the other two are just knocked out.
0: Yeah, the challenges I mean, I faced a ton of challenges, is the short answer. I, you know, and I can see the challenges in Super Pumped, which is why I'm interested in sort of watching it. I mean, the biggest challenge and the reason there's all these docu dramas sort of about WeWork or the dropout, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, I mean, you, you sort of it seems like the house style is to make these shows. And I know a little bit about that world just from friends who've adapted to different things. Like, you need a big star who will only want to play the founder. And that's how you, you know, sort of get the show made. Uh, and it gives lots of people work, it gives lots of actors work, writers, whatever. Like, hey, like making, getting work done, any sort of creative work is a hard enterprise. I mean, it's interesting to me that my book is coming out around the same time as all these shows. Cause like the CEO doesn't show up, he sends an email or two in my book, but I just wasn't really interested in that sort of perspective. And so when I watch that show, I see, and it's only like seven episodes, which is like way too short to uh, really tell the story of Uber. Like you're talking about, so like Susan Fowler gets like three or four scenes and Lewandowski's like making a little cargo. And then he's like, high five. We're in like, let's do this, Travis. <laughs> and like, it's, uh, it's not that the show is, is bad at all. And I can see them. There's all these sort of tricks they're doing having Quentin Tarantino voice it over, all these sort of like graphic stuff, because I think they're sort of trying to conceal that they have the wrong container for this story. You know, that like seven episodes of TV with a focus on the founder, who quite frankly, to me at least, is one of the least interesting parts. Like you're saying, like um, there's these other ways in which I, like when Lewandowski's talked about, it, I'm like, yeah, I just want to re- go back and read that stuff about him. Or like at the end of the one episode when Susan Fowler is typing, you know, a very strange year at Uber, I'm like, nothing's gonna beat that blog post. Like there's no representation that's gonna beat that. Now, I say this like you it as a blog boy. We were born in the blogs. We were born on the blog of July back in the day. Like we, you know, we 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 like I have, <laughs> I have a, a very title, dude. <laughs> Uh I have a I have a very, you know, a very soft spot for anybody who is changing the world via that sort of mechanism. But but I see, it's an interesting show to me because I see, not that I'm saying it's bad or they're doing a bad job at all. It's just interesting to me. I see the container and the shape of it that has to be negotiated with big ticket actors in a network and how much do they have. And it's really funny. I don't know if you know this if you notice this too, but like anytime so, people are always just bringing Travis Kalanick bad news in that show and like <laughs> someone will come in and be like, Hey, like some kid died and he's like, Jesus, we were just doing this. Why are you bringing me this? And I almost, I, pre, I almost think of the writers' room like being like, "What, Susan Fowler? We, we're trying to get this gray ball plot off the line. What are you talking about? We can't be <laughs> pivoting to that." Like, there's almost just like too much to do. Um, in a way that I like, I see, I see the struggle. I see that the challenge of that narrative form, and I see it because I had my my own doing it. I mean, the biggest one was just every time I changed stuff, I wouldn't. Like, when you change one itty-bitty little thing in a little 182-page book, I try to keep this book short and fast and quick. I think if you write, like, a 400-page science fiction book, like, you really have to start doing sort of Tolkien, like, languages and, like, sort of – you have to really be more accountable for, like – if this book was, like, 500 pages, I'd have to be like, well, why is policy that way? And let's get some politicians involved and let's do – all this other stuff. But when I started changing like one teeny little thing about 2030 and about the cars or some system or some, whether they're, I even went back and forth. Are there EVs or not? And right up until the end, because I'm far too much of a sentence tinkerer, I'll spend years focusing on sentences. What letter does a paragraph end on to carry that sound into the next one? What does that mean? Oh, I, I have a problem. Like, I I, uh, I, love, listen, why is my first novel coming out at 35 when I write, love writing as much as I do? It's because I fucking love writing. I will just write and work on it and revise, like, all the time. I love it. It's what I was put on earth to do by the, by the great mechanic in the sky. Uh, you know, like, I, I, uh, I absolutely love it and will tinker and work. But as I'm tinkering and working and doing all this stuff, then I give the book after we already printed the stupid galleys to my sister's boyfriend, who's a, who's at like the nicest person in the world and a Michigan born GM parents, GM worker, like, and he was just like, Hey, this is really great. There's just some like things you're like missing about that you change these electric vehicles and these parts are not in the car. And I was like, okay, like you need to make, I I had done this. I'd already gotten like an AV person and a car person to sort of read it like a year ago multiple times but i kept tinkering because i'm a tinkerer and so like the biggest problem for me was just like stop tinkering pick a model like get somebody to vet it i sent a spreadsheet to ed of my my wonderful uh sister's boyfriend who had like you know 80 corrections that i have since fixed but honestly like the biggest challenge is like honestly ed your book said it too like making cars is hard (laughs) like making cars is really hard and i had to make Cars and systems, and and it was like fun at times. Um, to have that sort of freedom, I definitely. When my son was two or three, we would, I would take him in a stroller, uh, down in the area where the companies operate in Pittsburgh, and just sort of like, uh, like a test driver would be like parking somewhere, doing something. Like, oh, my son loves cars. Can he take a peek? And I'd like take a peek, and I would sort of look at like an Uber car or maybe some other ones, and just sort of like I loved sort of doing that kind of reconnaissance just on my own and just sort of, uh, you know, peeking around, but man, building cars is freaking hard. Like it's really, really challenging.
2: But I'm curious, you, did you have, uh, did you have any, um, anonymous sources who have worked as safety drivers when you were. No,
0: I, I have many men. This is where people who are listening to this podcast might start getting nervous. Um, Mm. I have a whole lot of friends who work in a whole lot of companies, uh, some of whom don't work there anymore, some of whom still do work there. I, honestly, I have not really leveraged... For instance, my my brother works at Uber. Like, I've had one conversation uh, with my brother about it. doesn't work anything related to driverless cars. Um, Now, people... I think what's happened a lot is people have sought me out, which has been an interesting thing. Like, Alex, you... You sought me out after my piece, like Ed sort of did. Like once I started putting some stuff out there, a lot of people, you know, started reaching out and started sort of. Not, I mean, I'm not a journalist, so it's not like I need to protect sources. I just try to be a really good, open person. I've had a lot of coffees, a lot of drinks, just chatting with people. Um, I wouldn't say I've ever put anybody in a bad spot. I don't think this book's going to come out, and anybody's like feeling like their life is in the line or something uh like i just wouldn't do that to somebody nor quite frankly i mean some of this stuff is just pretty not obvious but i think there's a way in which this book is almost as much about my life having done time uh as an adjunct in higher ed as it is being a test driver in uh the driverless car sector but i do i will say if you're in the sector out there like there's no shortage of people who got little stories and little novels and little things uh that they're working on and i love reading them. I love, I love talking with people about them. Um, I I was telling Ed previously that like one of my goals at some point in time during the pandemic, I was like, Oh, when when my book comes out, I'll also like put together this anthology of like other narratives. Like I don't want mine to be the only one. I genuinely don't want it to. I was like, I'll, I'll like some of these other people I know, I'll convince them to sort of, we'll pull up this little zine. It can be anonymous if they want. Of course, like, I don't know. That was just way too ambitious. I could barely get the car stuff right in my own book, let alone help, other people there is one person who might be listening to this podcast who's like yeah when's my book coming out you said you're gonna put out a book for me like of my stuff and that's like it's like i'm trying, trying. I, i'm trying to get stuff done but so i mean i do know a ton of people uh in the sector and i know a lot of them who i would just encourage you to if you're out there like keep trying to write and think about things in a different way get off twitter for like 10 minutes and try a screenplay a story put it in the future make it speculative i'm i like big part of my life is just reading work from friends or quite frankly strangers who just sort of see my work or want to get want to get in touch like i love it i again that arc that arc that i talk about when you write fiction you change uh the characters have to go through a change your readership can go through a change um so like yeah it's just some people sort of helped me with this it wasn't like i was interviewing them for for like details, it was more like, "Do you think this like would pass muster as like you know seems somewhat reasonable?" Is okay. Uh, I'm still doing that process right now, but yeah, that's I'll tell kind you of this,
2: professor: is a few companies that remain sure nameless but have been in the press recently have gotten into really big hot water with NHTSA for really bad safety policies or absence of safety policies around safety drivers and testing. Um, if I saw If I was even aware of behavior, like I saw in the first few chapters of your book, (laughs) at my employer, three slacks later, everybody would be fired. (laughs) But I'm aware that there are companies out there that are not so strict. And I mean, Ed, do you recall the stories from, what was it, a month or two ago? There was a single safety driver in a vehicle who literally was asleep as it was driving down the road. Uh, Who was that? I think it was WeRide, wasn't it? And all right is that a russian company is that, that wasn't yeah chinese chinese China, yeah uh i suspect oh, you're
1: talking that, about you're talking about the the issue with nitza's with pony no that's well, right I mean,
3: I, potentially a couple of things i know pony and i know yeah. we ride got in trouble i think they were the ones who had the single safety driver who who had fallen asleep
2: i mean you've got to have some very seriously <laughs> serious policies and you have to enforce them to prevent exactly that kind of thing. And when I was reading when I was reading McGiddy's book, I'm like, I I was convinced that you had spoken to someone at one of those companies because how else?
0: <laughs> anytime I thought I would was like being too mean or something, because I had that like all the time. And like to be clear, I don't think I'm that mean. Like this stuff mostly works in the book. Like it mostly like the tech mostly works, but like anytime I thought I was being too like I don't know, mean or taking a shot or something, which I really don't think I do. But something would happen in the news and I'd be like, Nope, I'm fine. <laughs> like I'm like, I'm like, I, I'm fine. These companies will always give me some kind of some kind of leeway. Uh something will happen uh every couple months. Um but yeah, it wasn't really sources. And like even Kirsten, I wanted to ask you, like, I, I'm not a journalist by trade. Um, but like it is it is a weird thing where as I've developed my perception of different these different companies and these different people like people do kind of i may be protecting them a little bit too much like some people definitely have like just started venting to me or different things or whatever and it's a you must just have a weird life you hear from like 20 times more people than i do and like (laughs) how you balance like what is real what's not like do you how how, i guess i'm just asking like how to be a journalist but like (laughs) i've sort of struggled with like what what do i is, like, the stuff I hear on the side, like, actually the real stuff and the real insight? Is that just, like, venting? Is it what gets put? Is it what you can deliver on? If it, Is it what's your actual partnerships you make? Like, how do you, how do you sort through all this? I'm doing it, like, as an absolute amateur, and it's been confusing yeah. at times.
1: Well, I would say this. Um, one, you have the benefit of not being a journalist, so people are perhaps more truthful. Yeah. But I just go into it assuming that I'm being used. That that that, I mean because 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 even if someone is being truthful to me, they're making a choice to speak to a journalist. Um however I would say this, like I've definitely become friends with people in the industry who um like give me tips or helpful things. Um and I but I have to keep in mind like maybe they work for a competitor, maybe they, you know, don't. Um and then there's like over time uh the it like a pyramid the numbers get much much smaller in terms of people within the industry who I truly trust um and who will even who who will speak frankly about things and will be a gut check um but as the funnel gets wider uh, especially if it's coming from like anyone official within a company like it's very common for people within a company to offer me tips but it's like that's a story plan or it's a, you know, Hey, look at this. And it might even be accurate by the way. Like it might even be real, but I have to be like, why is this person giving me this information? So it's a twofold process. Is this real? Yes. Why is this person choosing to give me this information? And that can be, um, you know, it can be very difficult to, um, get to the bottom of, right? So you kind of just have to go into it and it sounds so cynical, but like it, it's a great shortcut. Just be like, I'm assuming people are just try, trying to use me in some way, and so as soon as you, if you enter in that point, then it's good. Your experience probably is different because you're not a journalist, so you are probably getting more truthful, venting, kind of less manipulative type of information than than I'm getting.
3: Yeah, having I, I, been yes. a little bit on both sides of this, I think what Kirsten, what you're saying here is so right on. Like I. you get very different kinds of calls as a journalist than you do as just a friend who someone wants to catch up with, who's no, you know, no longer in journalism. And um, it's been fascinating to see like that, that when you're not a journalist, you do sometimes just get the more raw unvarnished sort of version of what's going on. I think you can, you can still deconstruct the more polished versions of them and get to what's going on, even if you are being used in some way. Again, it's, it's about, Understanding how you're being used, um, but but I think it's it is fascinating to get the, to to have seen that difference a little bit now. Um, it, it kind of makes me wonder if like identifying yourself as a journalist is is a, a helpful or or maybe even not because you do kind of tend to get more like unvarnished stuff as a non.
1: It's like a little bit of a double edged sword because in many ways people want to talk to you because you're a journalist, right? Yeah. And like right. it's this weird unofficial badge you get to ask questions. So like we get like I get invited to a lot of events in which I have access to people and I get to ask them questions and I kind of think of myself as asking the questions that my readers would want to ask themselves if they had been invited to this. Like that's my job, right? Like it's to to be able to, you know, not to like hang out with them and, you know, it's it's like here's my chance. Everyone wants to know this question or answer this question. Let me let me ask it. But on the flip side, then oftentimes the inbound stuff that it's getting the the information isn't fully like it's not real so it's it's you know it's like but it's it's uh, that that skill set has allowed me to for example be really good at sorting out what is real and what is not real news um like what you know it's like it's it's a lot easier for me to pinpoint like uh, propaganda and bots. Maybe because I've always sort of have that in the background. Like, how am I being used? Like, is this real? How do I figure out if it's real? How do I verify? That path is like so. My whole mind is sort of wired that way now, as a result of you know years of being a journalist.
2: I, I took it as a badge of honor when various OEMs would ban me from uh, from junkets and press rides uh i mean you know i can say this has been so many years in 2015 or 16 um mercedes got really upset and uh i uh they did, i did a an adas comparison of, of mercedes uh e class versus a tesla at the time and it was a very fair and comprehensive review uh and mercedes got upset and Demanded a follow up, which I wrote, which they didn't like either. And then, like, not a retraction, but they had to get someone else from the outlet I was working for to write another review to counterbalance mine. I went to Pebble Beach soon after that. And someone who sh- I like, but who shall remain nameless because I'm diplomatic, um, was a guest in Mercedes that week in Best Hotel, you know, dinners, everything. Uh, and I walked into the restaurant and he was there with all these you know, Mercedes people and like insulted me in public. In front of all of them, like making fun. This um, is another
1: journalist, or like an, an,
2: another journalist, I guess, insulting me for the crime of um, suggesting that Tesla's eight ass at the time was better than Drive Pilot. And oh, well, everyone, every, every, this is six years ago, and everyone at the table snickered. And this was when I, I made like, I, I vowed that I would never. Um, I would never take an incoming pitch ever again, and I certainly would never go on a junket ever again. Um, I want to be a, a full-on outsider.
1: But now you're kind of it. But now you're kind of an insider. <laughs> I never
2: use the knowledge I have acu- I have gathered at Argo, right, right. Uh, on be- yeah. uh, on behalf of Argo or its investors to badmouth any competitor, whether it's an OEM competing with one of our investors or um, anyone competing with Argo. So.
0: There was there was 1% of me that was really hoping Adam Newman was going to wind up in that story somehow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I thought I, thought there was,
0: I really thought maybe it would uh, there would be some late late breaking the journalist was actually Adam Newman.
2: <laughs> uh, no, no.
1: Well, this has been a fun conversation. We could keep talking, but I know that I want to prevent Alex saying shouting into the mic it's time
2: to wrap up. So <laughs> it's um, time to wrap up. But well, can I I have to I have one more concluding message, Kirsten? Is it okay if I just Yes, please. Go. I really enjoyed this book. I recommend reading it. But if you read this book, um, and you uh, and your takeaway is Safety Drivers' Lives are like this. Well maybe it's some companies, not the one I work for. So do not, do not oh, call geez. me asking for okay. a job. Don't call me asking for a job. But highly recommend this book. it's, it's really interesting. Okay, I don't support that last message
1: because clearly this is <laughs> well, a book of fiction.
2: Well, well but <laughs> and, and then, but part of it strikes close to home at some other places, and it's, right, it's little, you're
1: getting a little sensitive, though. I, I am think. sensitive.
2: You know, actually, there is something else here. I think that the the, the part about the apartment hunting and the de- the desperate crunch to find an apartment is indicative of um, hustle, culture. Uh, hustle culture, in hustle culture in in a future where. The processes, the mechanisms of capitalism and finding your place, a home, a doctor, anything, any service required to maintain your personal dignity is so accelerated that you literally don't have time, free time to do it. You have to do it while on the job at a job, which is exploiting you is really, it's an important theme that comes and goes in science fiction cycles. And I think it's really important that it comes back and that it's addressed in an era of rising automation.
3: Yeah. And, and I want to really, uh, I want to, for my <laughs> concluding thought here, I want to echo what, what Patrick said about, about fiction and, and like there's just, there's so much need for, for more of it. Um, and I, I wanted to add to, to what, what he said rather than just to echo it, uh, that for me, I feel like I may have even mentioned on this show, it was like two years ago now that I was going to work on, on short stories. Um, and, and, I have, you know, parts of, of like two or so. Um, But like, for me, it it was very difficult to, to, to make, to transition into writing fiction. It's, it's very different than the kind of writing that I've done. And um, I will say that just reading Patrick's book, like reading this book, really got me fired up again to like go back and revisit those things. And, and Patrick's encouragement uh, that you heard earlier have been directed to me multiple times now. Um, and, and like, there's something about, about seeing someone else just do the thing um, and, and, and showing that it's possible that reminds you like, yes, this is possible. So I really, if this is something you've ever wanted to do, ever thought about doing, been scared to do it, been unsure if you're able to do it, whatever it is, whatever you've told yourself to prevent yourself from doing it, A, like I've told myself the same thing, whatever it is you've told yourself, I've I've gone through every excuse not to keep working on these stories. And there's something about reading this book in particular for me, because it is, it does remind me in some ways of some of the stuff I've worked on. that like it can be done and that it it can be that that it needs to be done right like that that it was like there was something about reading it that was like how did this not already exist this is something i've been looking for waiting for now that it's here it changes my perspective on what i can and, and really should try to do and so i'm <laughs> it's been so long i'm not going to make any promises <laughs> but i am i will definitely say reading this book really fired me up to to do a little bit of fiction myself and um and I really when are you
1: turning it in?
3: Yeah, like I said, not setting any deadlines here. Uh but I will say Patrick will be the first person I do send it to. Um and I do hope that I will have something to to send to him because um like I said, this really this book really inspired me. And um and I would love to see like an anthology of, of short fiction. And so if this book inspires you, or even just this conversation about this book inspires you to write something short and fictional, send it to Patrick, um, because I would love nothing more than to see him actually get enough stuff from people to to put out an anthology like this. I think if anyone can do it, it's him. And um, if anything will kickstart that process, it's reading this book. So so please like,
2: read this book. Okay. So the book is Test Drive. The book is Test Drive by Professor Patrick McGinty. McGinty, where can we where can we buy this book to make sure you pocket the most money?
0: Uh, if you go to propellerbooks.com, my book is listed there, Test Drive. You can see some very nice blurbs, including one from uh, Ed Niedermeyer. Um, yeah, it's out May 24th, so you can pre-order now. I'll be out in Portland the end of uh may uh maybe do something with that we're working with uh this big the handlers for this big ludicrous writer we're gonna have to see if we can you know maybe figure something out uh, with all his pr people and um and i'll be having a book release party here in pittsburgh at white whale bookstore the heroic white whale bookstore on june 3rd a couple other things throughout the summer but yeah propellerbooks.com um test drive is there for pre-order it's out may 24th um you know, if you read it, reach out to me. I'd love to talk about it. And honestly, if if like Ed's saying, it means a lot. It means a lot. All the nice things being said on this podcast about me, and, and honestly, Ed's reaction that it's inspiring to write is is one of the, the greatest things I could hope for my writing um, to do is to is to bring others to to the process as well. So if, if it does, if you do have an idea, you don't even know how to go about it, like reach out, drop me a line. I'm on Twitter at Patrick M McGinty. You know, reach out. I'd love to chat.
1: Well, on that note, um, thank you, Patrick, for joining us today. And thank you to our audience for listening to another episode of the Atonicast.
2: And this book, um, pulls together multiple strands around what the life of a gig worker would be like in the future. I'm not, that's not me pouring out a drink for gig workers. Um, uh, (laughs) I was, I was pouring,
1: I was pouring out a drink for gig workers just then.
2: Okay.